Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwalbish. Welcome back to the show. I'm excited for this week's episode because I get to talk to an actual Urban Institute colleague in person, which is always more fun than chatting on the phone. Uh, but before we get to the show, I actually have two announcements for you. The first is to check out a new podcast. Uh, the Urban Institute has just launched a new podcast called Critical Value. Um, it's going to explore issues of significance for research, policy, and people. Each episode will feature an Urban Institute expert and discuss the best available data and evidence on topics that matter. Uh, the first few episodes are already out talking about infrastructure and natural disasters and talking about justice policy. So it's a great show. Um, it's on iTunes. It's on Stitcher. It's on all the major podcast apps. So I do recommend <coughs> you check that out. My second announcement is for a data visualization workshop taking place here in Washington, D.C. at the Urban Institute. I'll be hosting a one-day, full-day workshop on data visualization Tuesday, February 13th, starting at 9 a.m., we're going to talk about core principles of data visualization, and then we're going to talk about how to create visualizations in Excel and extend the capabilities of that tool. So please do check that out. I'll put uh, links to both of those to the Critical Value podcast and to my workshop on February 13th on the show notes. So please be sure to check both of those out. But now on to the show. And on this week's episode, we're going to talk about taxes, tax policy, and tax data. And to help me do so, I am very pleased to be joined by Len Berman, a former head of the Tax Policy Center and now a tax policy thought leader. I'm just going to say that should be your title. Uh, Len, welcome to the show. Thanks. Um, be honored. Thanks for coming on. So you and I actually have sort of similar tracks, right? Because you... Well, you started at Treasury. You started your career at Treasury, right? Yep. And then you were at CBO for a while, mm -hmm. and now you're at Urban. And then you were also at Syracuse University, where I did my grad work. So, like, yeah. I should take a job at Treasury just for a little bit, so I can say I followed the Len Berman path. Right. I actually was at Treasury twice. So oh, I came, right. Just came to Urban, went back to Treasury. Right. Uh, I clearly can't hold a job for very long, but <laughs> the people who hired me in the past can't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> that's the key. That's the key is to get hired by people who don't remember where you've been. Right. Yeah, or that you've been there and they, and they, they wanted you to leave. <laughs> right, right. So uh, I want to talk about taxes. You've been a tax economist for quite a long time, been involved in a lot of the hands-on, the policy discussions. Um, and obviously, uh, the tax discussion has been uh, in the headlines the last few weeks. But can we start with a basic question of what do you think people don't understand about the U.S. tax system? Just about everything. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, to be fair, it's really complicated. Yeah. Uh, but there are really basic things that confuse people about the tax system, like uh, most people don't know that they pay more in payroll taxes than income taxes. You know, it's kind of interesting. Every April, people are up in arms about their tax income tax liability. But for the vast majority of Americans, when you include both what the employer and the employee pays for Social Security and Medicare... Uh, that's more than they pay in income taxes. For most people, it's a lot more. The difference might be that people actually, they understand what their payroll taxes are paying for. They think they do, and they support the program. Social Security is a very popular program, uh, whereas the income tax is more nebulous. I mean, you're, did you know what part of that destroyer do you own, and do you feel good about it? Right. I think people don't understand about business taxes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Mitt Romney got into trouble in 2012 when he said, corporations are people, my friend. Mm -hmm. Everybody laughed at him. I did too. But every public finance economist understood that he's kind of right. Mm. Corporations are legal entities, but they're owned by people. People work for them. People buy their stuff. 
when you impose a tax on corporations, it's borne by people. Right. And a part of the debate this time around has been, well, who actually pays the corporate tax? The White House has been trying to argue that, you know, the big corporate tax cut, which they just got through, is going to really benefit workers. And it's plausible. It might be the companies will take all the money they're saving, buy lots of equipment that will make workers a lot more productive, and then they'll pay them more money. Evidence suggests there's probably a little bit of that, but not enough to make people be singing all the way to the bank. Right. But it is an issue. One of the fun things about this last year and a half is that even if you don't like the way the tax bill came out, there were a lot of really interesting issues that came up. There was an issue about uh, how we should tax imports and exports mm -hmm. and the value-added tax, which is the sales tax that's collected all around the world except in the U.S., it taxes imports and it doesn't tax exports. And there are economic reasons for why you would do that. Basically, the idea is that when you buy something, the, the place where you live should have the right to tax it. But a lot of people think that this is a subsidy to exports. Economists would say, well, it's not really a subsidy to exports. And one of the tax reform proposals had said, well, we're going to do that in the income tax. We're going to have a tax on exports and we're going to have a rebate on imports. And on paper and in principle, it was kind of brilliant. It would remove location as a factor in deciding where, where to produce things because the only thing that would matter for your tax bill would be who's buying it. If the things are being bought in the United States, you pay tax on it, whether you're in the U.S. or in Belgium. And if the things are being bought in China, you don't pay tax on it, whether you produce in the U.S. or somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But a couple of issues. One is that importers thought that they were really going to get whacked. Walmart and department stores didn't, didn't think this would be good for them. Yep. Economists said, well, don't worry, exchange rates will adjust and <laughs> it won't hurt you. And, and there are reasons to think that in the long run that might happen, that basically if you change the relative taxation that it's offset by the value of the dollar. But in the short run, some companies can go bankrupt and they kind of understood that. The other thing, of course, is they have contracts. So even if in the long run they'd be good, in the short run they would have promised to pay a certain amount in dollars mm -hmm. and the exchange rate change wouldn't change that. Kind of gets deep into the weeds, right? right? But it's, well, it's fun to talk about these things and it's kind of maybe understandable people that don't understand the issues. The other thing, of course, is that politicians don't really have an incentive to make things clear. The people who supported this thing, you know, once say, well, look, this is great for exports. No, it's going to, not going to hurt imports. Mm -hmm. And the people who didn't like it said, you know, look, this is this is really going to whack companies like Walmart. So I'm, I'm guessing that <clears> there are people who are listening to this that just glazed over <laughs> when you start talking about imports and exports. So you've been talking about this these topics for a long time. So uh -huh. what are the sorts of strategies or techniques or words that you use or visuals that you and Tax Policy Center have used to try to get people to focus and understand. I think for me, where this sort of came into focus was back in, I think it was 2008, when Obama was running, and there was Joe the Plumber. Mm -hmm. And President Obama, when he was campaigning, he said, we're going to raise taxes above $250,000, right. and or raise the rate. And Joe the Plumber said, well, I'm not going to work more because it's going to, I'm going to pay so much more taxes. And, mm -hmm. and at that point, I was like, okay, so people don't understand the rate and bracket structure, like the, the fundamental basics, they don't understand that. Right. So... Have there been things that you have found that have been successful in trying to convey even some of these simple concepts, either to a wide audience or to, to policymakers? First of all, it's hard. Yeah. Again, tax code's complicated. Yeah. Uh, and we all have a temptation to get into the weeds. I think people like graphs, a well-designed graph yeah. can 
get across that this thing is really going to benefit Joe the plumber or it's not. Yeah. Uh, you actually did something for us when we were looking at the effects of the tax legislation uh, going going through Congress the last month, just right. showing over time who would win and who would lose. And the visual, you know, people can kind of see motion like, oh, well, there's a bunch of winners in 2025, but not many in 2027. Right. We try to build tools that people can play with. People, at least nerdy people, like playing with text calculators. <laughs> so every year we ruin Valentine's Day by putting out our marriage penalty calculator, showing millions of people that they made a big mistake when they got married because their taxes went up. Uh, actually, most people pay less tax. But, but just sort of illustrating, people like to personalize this. People yeah. showing how the different tax bills would affect people at different income levels. Or you, you know, you put in what your wages are and how many kids you have and so so yep. on, how old you are. There's a risk, which is that you can miss a lot of parts of the story. Like, for example, taxation of businesses is important. You're not going to see that when you look at how right. you're on tax bill. The deficit is important. Say, wow, you know, I get this big tax cut. Wow, that's fantastic. But somebody's got to pay for it. Yeah. There can be a cut in spending or taxes will go up or something. You can't capture that. But you know, these things are helpful. We're trying to design other tools and mm -hmm. just show people the structure of tax brackets. Uh, you know, one thing that would surprise people is that when you cut the lower tax brackets, you really help people with very high incomes. Mm. Or when you put more people in, say, the 10% bracket, because if you would otherwise be paying 37% and now you're paying 10%, you get a huge break. Right. Whereas if you'd be paying 15% said it's eh, not so much. Right. So we're trying to think of things like that. The other thing is... You know, telling stories, trying to simplify it, tell Joe the plumber how it's really going to affect him. And one thing we did a long time ago was we hired a really smart, careful reporter to run the TPC blog. And he takes the nerdy technical stuff that we write and he writes a story that, you know, might go in a popular publication. Yep. And it's still maybe not the kind of thing somebody's going to read and, you know, instead of watching primetime television, but... But for people who want to understand things, I think it helps. Yeah, absolutely. When going back to uh, the current tax law, the current debate we just had, mm -hmm. what do you think are the you know top few things that people don't understand about that debate? I was perhaps surprised on, on both sides of the aisle what people were focusing on and not focusing on. The deficit didn't seem to me get as much attention as I thought it would. I also, on the other side, I was surprised that the Republicans weren't saying, well, we're cutting the corporate tax rate by so much historical evidence may not be sufficient to be able to do this modeling that, that you're doing mm -hmm. now. So that's sort of on the end of the modelers and the, and the economists and the policymakers. But generally, what was your feeling that people weren't really understanding or grasping about how this was going to impact their households and the country? I think a lot of times people outside the Beltway who aren't obsessed with this and honestly probably aren't listening to your blog, <laughs> right, right. Uh, don't really understand how tax changes affect them. In 2009, when we passed a big economic stimulus, which was designed to make people richer and get them to spend money, a lot of people thought President Obama had raised their taxes. Yeah. The same thing happened to George W. Bush in 2001, when they were also you know, part of the rationale for that tax cut was to try to get the economy going. So that Republicans and Democrats are arguing about whether people are going to like this bill or not, a, a sobering aspect is that a lot of them might have no idea at all as to what it actually does to yeah. them. You know, and there's a problem, of course. 
both parties have an incentive to to spin the legislation in the most favorable light for them or, or I, I don't want to disillusion you, but sometimes they even say things that aren't true. No, that can't be. I know. Uh, <laughs> I think the Democrats want to get across that middle-income people are hurt by this bill. I mean, it might be in the long run or even in the short run, if there are big cuts in spending, they will be. But most people are going to get a tax cut. You know, I say, well, middle-income people are getting a tiny tax cut compared to the really high-income people. That's an issue to discuss. But most people are going to get a tax cut, even you know, the people up in arms in New York State and Connecticut and New Jersey who think because we limited property and sales tax deductions, they're going to pay more, vast majority of them are going to pay right. less because right. we raised standard deduction, cut tax rates, and so on. Again, it's kind of understandable. We have a nice calculator on the mm-hmm. Tax Policy Center website. Anybody wants to find out how the bill will affect them, you can get at least an approximation by, you know, by using the calculator. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are just going to make judgments based on their source of news or who they talk to or maybe just biases about how one party or the other works. From your perspective, what were the things that you thought the bill did well? Well, maybe maybe you don't think so, but what did the bill did, did well and what did it do poorly? Now, there was some simplification in the bill. Mm-hmm. Um, not as much as I would have liked. Raising the standard deduction will make things easier for mm-hmm. a lot of people because they won't have to keep track of their mortgage interest, charitable contributions, state and local taxes. There's a flip side to that, of course, which the people, you know, home builders who think people buy homes because they like the mortgage interest deduction, charities who think people give to charity in part because they get a tax break, right. they're a little bit worried about this. Yeah. Uh, the bill got rid of some obscure provisions that complicate the tax code and really don't belong there, like the phase-out of itemized deductions and personal exemption phase-up. They also got rid of personal exemptions. Uh, they changed the way the tax code adjusts for inflation. Uh, that's warranted. The measure we'd used for you know back since 1983 or 84 was one that assumed that people couldn't adjust to changes in prices, and obviously they can't, so the new measure adjusts for that. Uh, cutting corporate tax rates is a good thing. Our mm-hmm. corporate tax rate was high relative to the rest of the world. The worst thing about the bill is that it adds a whole lot to the deficit. Yeah. And some of the advocates tried to argue that, well, by lowering tax rates and providing other good incentives, it would make the economy a whole lot more productive and GDP would go up. We think GDP will go up a little bit, uh, right. but not anywhere near enough to offset the revenue loss, then the official scorekeeper in Congress and other independent analysts have reached the same conclusion. So CBO updated their estimates of what happens to the national debt, uh, and they concluded that by the end of 2027, 10 years from now, it'll be 97.5% of GDP, uh, which is really high. The last time it was that high was right after World War II, and we got the debt down very, very quickly. There's no giant peace dividend that's going to make it easy to cut the debt now, and it doesn't make sense to be accumulating enormous amounts of debt when the economy is at full employment, uh, and when we know that there are going to be a, a lot of, the government has a lot of obligations going forward. It's already going to have a hard, hard time managing. Well, it's got those obligations plus paying back the debt and the interest on the debt, and it also makes us very sensitive to increases in interest rates. The bill bill was regressive in the sense that tax breaks were a much larger share of income for people at the top than people at the bottom. Uh, when you look at what's happened over the last 30 years, high-income people's uh, economic performance doesn't seem like it would be at the top top of the list of concerns. Big concerns is middle-income people have been really struggling, and, and low-income people 
Bill didn't really do much for the for them. Uh, it's created some large new tax shelters. Yeah. There's a big tax deduction for people who are self-employed or in partnerships. I guess I can tell Sarah right on this podcast that I'm going to be a, an independent consultant starting this. No, <laughs> kidding. But I mean, if, if I did that, if you did that, and instead of being employees of the Urban Institute, 20% of our income would be exempt from tax. That right. makes no sense. Yeah. It's regressive in the, in the sense that it benefits high-income people the most. Uh, it'll encourage all sorts of shenanigans, and it's not going to help the economy to grow. You talked about um, trying to convey this complex information and trying to tell mm -hmm. stories and get people to see themselves in the in the tax code and in the data. Do you think the other complication is this, the 10-year or looking out in the future when you say you're going to get a tax cut in the first few years of this mm -hmm. of, of this bill, but 10 years from now, you're not going to have the same cut as, as those at the top of the distribution? Is that... Do you think that's a hard way to sell policy to, to people? I mean, it just adds the complexity to think of these things that have very complex patterns over time. The thing I didn't mention, which I think you were alluding to, is that most of the tax cuts uh, end after 2025. Right. Because of alleged fiscal responsibility. Now, all the advocates say, well, we're going to extend those tax cuts, which means it's even more expensive than we thought. But in 2026, 2027 a lot of people are going to actually have higher taxes yeah. because the thing that's left is slower adjustment for inflation, right. which will raise their taxes. Yeah, I mean, I think people have a hard time understanding how taxes is going to affect them next year or the year after and saying you really should worry about 2026 is maybe a stretch. I mean, yeah. the problem the country has is that we have so many looming problems that are kind of growing over time, not just in the tax area. And I think it's hard for people to make space for them uh, in their consciousness while they're also figuring out how to get by from week to week or month to month. Right. But we try, you know, I think actually your charts were a good way of showing this is how things will change over time. Yeah. And I think there, there's more we can do. And I think the, the, the challenge is figuring it out. Right. The, um, the calculators that, you, that you've mentioned that, that TPC Tax Policy Centers put out, um, they allow individuals to select scenarios or of sort of made up people or, or units or to put in their own information. And I wonder whether you think there's a, an opportunity or an opening there to change the way our, the, the tax forms actually work. I mean, the tax forms, even if you do them electronically, it's still basically the paper form. Uh -huh. We're just typing them in. So have you thought about how to make the actual filing of the taxes better, easier, more intuitive? Yeah. Uh, one thing we could do would be to try to adopt a system like the one in the UK where most people don't even have to file a return. That requires making the tax code a lot simpler. Mm -hmm. It also requires people to share more information with their employers than we might be comfortable with. So it might be that we can't do that. But in the UK, basically, the employer takes money out of your paycheck. And for most people, that's the end of the story. They don't right. ever have to file a return. Another less drastic option would be to have the IRS put together all the information they collect on your behalf on a tax return and say, here's a start for you. We've gotten wages from your employer or employers. We know how from your bank, we know how much interest you earn from your stockbroker. We know how much mm -hmm. dividends you got. Uh, and they could start to fill out the return for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, you would need to check it, add, add or correct information. Uh, the thing I would actually like the IRS to do would be to use tax filing as an opportunity to provide people information about how a tax system works. And yeah. the particular thing that I think people don't understand too well is that the tax system has got two functions. One is it raises revenue to pay for the government. Second is 
there are a whole bunch of programs we run through the tax code, <laughs> yeah. subsidies for children, child care, uh, building housing for low-income people, buying a home, giving to charity, and all of those things. And what I would like would be for the IRS to, in exchange for you giving them a form, for them to send you back a form saying, here's how much tax you paid before taking account of all these subsidy programs we run through the code, and here's how much you got to help you pay for your mortgage, charitable contributions, children, and so on. And the reason I think that would be useful is that, one, I think people don't understand that there really are a lot of breaks that apply to middle and lower income people and not just high income people. Second, tax reform might involve trading off some of those things for just lowering the top line tax obligation. I think uh, people in the House kind of wanted to go in that direction mm -hmm. and they got really hard pushback from people thought they would lose from eliminating one tax break or another. But that's the kind of trade-off you should think about. If you got rid of a lot of those special tax breaks, you can make the tax system a lot simpler right. and, and arguably fair. Yeah. So you mentioned these tax calculators. Um, you've mentioned the, the blog and the different types of writing. Are there other ways or other communication devices that TPC has used or that you've used on your own that you find are successful in conveying information about the tax system? Social media can be yeah. useful. So we get into conversations with people who are engaged on it. And on occasion, if you get, if you can come up with a particularly salient way of getting across some important piece of information, thousands or maybe tens of thousands or more people will share it. Now, mm -hmm. uh, one thing that's useful about that is you get instant feedback. You know, we put out a paper and sometime later we'll get a report as to who read the paper. And, uh, this thing, it's like instant, you know, like, right. Uh, in some ways, that's a drawback because you can get sucked in to see <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. whether your viral tweet, you know, how far it's gone when you should be doing other work. But right. it is useful. I mean, actually, the, the message I get a lot of the times is that I'm talking to 10 other people. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes, sometimes you strike a nerve. And I think there's, there, there are things we can learn about that. I think we could also do a lot more just with creative data visualizations, the kind of thing you really, really good at. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had a hard time figuring out how to do that when we're scrambling to get things done on really, really tight deadlines yeah. with limited budgets. Uh, I'm hoping that the technology makes it easier to do those kinds of things mm -hmm. and that maybe we can figure out ways to build it into the production process where we can get that kind of graphical representation out in real time. The CBO does a really, really good job of telling stories with graphs, pictures, right. a combination of words and, and graphical presentations and I would love to be able to do more of that. Right. I want to ask one last question um, on the data that TPC uses. Um, a lot of it is administrative data. I know a lot of people want to use administrative data because it's really rich, but can you just talk a little bit about the sort of administrative data files that you and TPC use and the both the pros and the cons of using those sorts of files? So the, the main administrative data file we use is called the IRS public use file. And this has 150,000 or so individual income tax returns with some adjustments to protect confidentiality of the data. And obviously, there's no individually identifiable information. And we use that file to basically, we've got a giant TurboTax thing right. that calculates tax liability for every return. And then we can change things. Say, well, suppose you increase the child credit or you change the brackets or something else. We can calculate those changes and it gives us a representation of how it would affect overall revenues, how it affects distribution of tax burdens, people at different income levels, and so on. 
Uh, we also pull in a lot of information from other sources like surveys because there's a lot of information that affects your tax filing that you don't report on your income tax return. For example, your health insurance, you report that to, that, that goes to the Social Security Administration. It doesn't actually, it's not on your income tax return, but that's useful for determining the value of that big tax break that it's yep. tax-free. We have an estate tax model, uh, mm -hmm. which is a challenge because we don't actually have estate tax returns. But there's information from the Federal Reserve about people's wealth levels, and we can sort of make an estimate of what their taxable estate would be. And then if we figure out the probability they would die, that gives us an idea of uh, what estate tax liability is. Probably people would be unhappy to know that we're probabilistically killing off everyone in the United States to <laughs> make these estimates. But for most people listening, the probability is very, very low. Okay. Uh, the bigger challenge is business taxation. There's no corporate tax return file. And the reason is that it would be impossible to make an Apple tax return look like any company other than Apple and so on. Mm. Uh, but we're trying to figure out ways to model corporations and other businesses using information people file with uh, uh, the SEC and you know, put on their annual reports and so on. That's, that's a much bigger undertaking. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's great data. They're great models. Um, we've talked about a lot. I'll put all of this on the show notes so people can check out all mm -hmm. the TPC products and blogs and podcasts and uh, calculators. So, Len, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been mm -hmm. really interesting. You're welcome. The one thing I didn't mention was uh, state taxes. Mm -hmm. And we're in the process of trying to build in state tax calculators. Okay, well, thanks everyone for tuning into this week's episode. Again, don't forget about the Urban Institute's new podcast, Critical Value. It's on all the major podcast providers. Also, don't forget about my February 13th data visualization workshop here at the Urban Institute. And please let me know if you have comments or questions. There's lots of information about taxes, about the government, about uh, the economy at the Urban Institute website, and of course at the tax policy website, all of which I'll link to on the show notes. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.